From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. What do you do if you want to get paid more? What do you have to prove? Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character Rod Tidwell knew exactly what to do in the movie Jerry Maguire. Jerry! Yeah, what, what, what can I do for you? Show me the money. Then, of course, there's Don Cheadle and Al Pacino's discussion in the movie Ocean's 13. Mr. Bank, do you know what Chuck Berry said every night before counting one, two, three, four? What did he say? Pay me my money! <laughs> well, I'm sure my people will be... In cash. Cash. I mean, come on. These guys knew exactly how to get paid. But let's face it. They were playing fictional characters. What could that possibly have to do with us? Well, a lot, actually. Those outrageous clips demonstrate people knowing their value and then demanding to be paid for it. Typically, if you want to raise, go to your boss and give them a reason to pay you more. But be prepared to tell them, what will you produce? How will you produce more this year than the previous year? Will the company be more valuable because of your efforts? These are just typically good things to demonstrate to justify paying you more. Know your added value, deliver, demand better pay. But if you've been paying attention to the news over the last several years, many people on the left are now calling for a $15 minimum wage, regardless of your skill set or the value you add to the company. We've seen the Fight for 15 campaign across the nation, and in some localities like Seattle, New York City, and San Francisco, the campaign has actually worked. But now, President Biden and his cohorts on the left are pushing for a mandatory national minimum wage of $15 per hour, doubling the current minimum wage. Here's President Biden voicing support. Our recovery plan also calls for an increase in the minimum wage at 15, at least $15 an hour. No one in America should work 40 hours a week making below the poverty line. $15 gets people above the poverty line. Now, we admire the president's compassion for impoverished people. But will raising the national minimum wage actually help the people he's trying to help? Or will it hurt them? With all the challenges COVID has brought us, can business owners actually afford this? According to President Biden, they can. There is no evidence that when you raise the minimum wage, businesses go out of business. That is simply not true. (laughs) 
Heritage labor expert Rachel Gressler is here this week to explain why she is worried that a one-size-fits-all national minimum wage will kill jobs, make things more expensive for consumers, and lead to less opportunity for people to demonstrate their value and demand a bigger paycheck. She shows us the money after this short break. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us again on Heritage Explains. My pleasure, Tim. It's great to be here. So a minimum wage in general is, I think it's a bad idea on principle. You know, set aside the $15 minimum wage. Now, we'll get into what it means for business and for the economy, you know, if a $15 minimum wage is passed. But I just wanted you to lay the groundwork on the principle that we use as to why we are opposed to a $15 minimum wage or just a minimum wage in general. Sure. You know, anytime that you set a minimum or a maximum anything, you're really excluding a bunch of people who would otherwise be below that minimum or who would be above that maximum. And that's the problem here that we're looking at is by raising the federal wage or any state or local wages to a level that is above what the market um, calls for it to be. You're pricing everybody out that's below that level. And so you are taking jobs away from people and you're taking opportunities away from individuals. And yes, we all want people to earn higher incomes, but the way to do that is by helping people to become more productive so that they can actually produce things that are of more valuable and that their incomes can grow over time. You don't want to cut off the bottom rung of the ladder. If somebody's willing to work for $5 an hour and they're a 16-year-old and they just want to get some experience so that in the future they can make $50 per hour, we shouldn't be saying that they can't do that. If there's a job out there somebody's willing to pay them for and they're willing to make that wage, that's a free market transaction. And there do need to be some protections in place, some workplace protections. And we have lots of labor laws in the United States that provide those sorts of things, but we don't want to exclude people. That's that's a really, really good point. And, and there are places in America right now where there is a $15 minimum wage. I think um, Seattle, San Francisco, New York. But, you know, those are expensive cities to live in. And if they determine that that's what they want to require, then, you know, they should have the freedom to do that. Not saying we agree with it, not saying that it's smart, Mm -hmm. but that is where we are in the process right now. I guess the best example is try to buy a beer in New York City versus Topeka, Kansas. I think that's the best thing. I mean, you it's definitely more expensive. So let me just ask you this. What would a $15 minimum wage look like outside of the Acela Corridor, you know, New York, Washington, D.C., that area where we live? Yeah, and I think that's a great question because we have all these policymakers sitting there in Washington, D.C. and saying we need a $15 minimum wage across the United States as one size fits all policy when really one wage doesn't fit all states and all localities. And so if you were to enact a $15 minimum wage in one of the lowest cost states, which is Mississippi, that's equivalent to a $35.74 minimum wage 
in the District of Columbia. Wait, 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 wait. Say that again. Say that. Wait. Thirty-five seventy-four would be the equivalent minimum wage for D.C., where these policymakers are setting this. And I don't think anybody would say that thirty-five dollars should be the minimum wage. They would realize that that's just not really economically possible. And yet that's what they're imposing on Mississippi and go even further south to Puerto Rico, where the median wage is ten dollars per hour. Well, translate that to D.C. That's like a fifty three dollar per hour minimum wage. Puerto Rico already has only 40% of its population participating in the labor force. And that's because a lot of them have already been pushed into the underground economy because of the minimum wage as well as other labor restrictions. You impose a $15 minimum wage there and you're just going to drive more people into unemployment or into underground employment where they don't actually have the protections that people want them to have. Rachel, why is $15 the number? Why not $25? Why not $35? Why why is $15 the number that the left has landed on? Well, fight for 15 sounds good. And you know, I think a handful of these cities in California and New York and other places have decided that they want to have $15 per hour. And once they have $15 per hour, um, you know, on On net, they can kind of handle it. It's high cost areas and they're able to raise their prices some. But even those places, Seattle, San Francisco, New York City, they've seen employment fall in the city because those people who don't have the most experience and the most education get pushed out of their jobs. Um, Those smaller businesses that aren't able to compete with the bigger companies are pushed outside those borders. And so they're going elsewhere Um, The problem when you implement this on a nationwide scale is there's nowhere else for them to go. Um, And so, as you said, you know, at what point do we cut it off? We always want people to earn more income. But when you do it by a government mandate, you're inherently just redistributing money. And in the end, economic studies show you're actually reducing net income. Whereas if you instead try to give people the capability to earn a higher wage, then everybody benefits and you have a larger economy and higher incomes for everyone. Why do we need a federal government mandate? Why can't we just let San Francisco be San Francisco? Why can't we let New York City be New York City? Why do we need to do this? Well, we really don't need a federal mandate here. And it's not even appropriate because as we were talking about the different costs of living and the different wage rates across the United States, it doesn't make sense to have this federal mandate. But I think that, you know, the big push for this is really about excluding certain people and trying to drive out the competition. You know, if San Francisco and Seattle and New York have a $15 minimum wage and they're losing to their competitors or Illinois has just passed a $15 minimum wage and its population has declined more than any other state in the last decade because all these surrounding states have lower minimum wages, more pro-growth policies, So you start losing to everybody around you, and then you just want to bring up the minimum for those and impose your same harmful policies on everybody else, and then people don't have anywhere else to go. And so I think that's part of it here, and that's what we've seen with the biggest groups that are fighting for a $15 minimum wage is the unions because they want to impose higher wage rates on everybody else so that those places, those smaller mom-and-pop shops can't compete with the bigger companies that are unionized and they drive them out of the marketplace. And the irony here is these unions like the SEIU, they fought for $15 per hour in all these cities. 
And then they tried to get themselves excluded from the $15 per hour minimum wage, saying that they didn't need to pay that wage because they would make up for it in other places through benefits, but all their competitors needed to pay that minimum wage. Yeah, those are consequences that <laughs> they may not want to own up to. But sticking with that, you know, you and I track the jobs report every month. It's one of those things, you know, the first Friday of every month, you and I go and see, you know, where the jobs are being created, where we're losing jobs. You know, it's clear to see how specific policies impact hiring that way. What are some of the biggest sectors that are going to be impacted by a $15 minimum wage? Well, the biggest areas are going to be retailers, restaurants, hotels, um, you know, the service sector in those industries. And this is precisely why now is the worst time to be talking about putting a national $15 minimum wage in place. We've already seen one out of nearly every five restaurants permanently close their doors in 2020. There have been 30 large retail and restaurant companies that have filed for bankruptcy. You know, the employment in the food services is down nearly 20%. Retail is down nearly 24%. Accommodations, 32%. So these are the hardest hit sectors. And these are the sectors that tend to have wages below $15 per hour and that would be hurt the most by hiking that minimum wage to $15 per hour. And yet, oddly, we've seen this included in President Biden's so-called rescue package, his COVID proposal, but that's like throwing a ton of bricks to a sinking ship. You know, that's not going to help these struggling businesses to be able to survive. They need to first be able to open their doors to be able to have customers come and sit in these restaurants if they feel safe doing so. And as long as those precautions are in place, Um, But, you know, after opening those doors, you just need the opportunities to be out there for those companies to be able to grow. And that includes being able to hire somebody at whatever wage rate they're willing to accept and that you mutually agree upon. A ton of bricks on a sinking ship. It reminds me of summer camp when we had to tread water uh, (laughs) to, to see if we could swim in the deep end. It really is an incredible analogy there, Rachel. I mean, and I wanted to say you make a really compelling point that economists on the left and the right say, or they have said that it is a bad idea to do a $15 minimum wage. You know, Obama's economists, the CBO, the nonpartisan CBO, and of course, uh, our economists, you and several others on the right, you know, the numbers are what they are. Good intentions often have a very difficult time changing the reality that numbers show. So, you know, have the numbers somehow changed between Obama's economists, you know, being skeptical of a $15 minimum wage and now, you know, could this actually work where we stand? No, you know, nothing's changed except that the bandwagon's now moving. And so some of these people who previously opposed a $15 minimum wage or trying to backtrack or to hop on the wagon. You know, as you said, all economists will agree that when you raise the price of something, you reduce the demand for it. That's why 74% of economists oppose raising the minimum wage to $15 per hour. You have, you know, former chair of Obama's White House Council of Economic Advisors, Alan Kruger, warning. He said that the research suggests that a minimum wage as high as $12 an hour would do more harm than good for low-wage workers. But a $15 an hour national minimum wage would put us in uncharted waters 
and risk undesirable and unintended consequences. And that's across the board here too. You had Janet Yellen talking in a previous hearing about the negative consequences of the minimum wage. And I think she previously has backtracked on that in her recent confirmation hearing a little bit to you know try to tamper down her previous opposition. But you know, across the board, it is what it is. $15 per hour is absolutely too high in the majority of places in this country if we want people to be able to get a foot in the door. And that's the problem is that it's not just talking about, oh, we're going to wipe out two or three million jobs today. It's what are those people going to do in the future? And what does America look like when you have millions of people who simply are priced out of working, period? You know, that's when you have to start talking about things like a universal basic income. And the reality there is then everybody who's actually working needs to make $18,500 in order to support just that UBI benefit. And so it really just spirals out of control and the economy doesn't work that way. Well, we know that economists on the left are calling for a universal basic income. So, Rachel, that's probably another episode that we're going to have to deal with. But, you know, you know, the whole premise here, it, it just to me, it just seems wrong. You know, a $15 minimum wage suggests that employers, you know, are wrong in what they decide to pay their employees. And, you know, they need to be corrected by government. But, you know, in, in your piece, and, and I'm going to link to this, folks, please log on and check it out. It's, it's extremely important to read. The whole premise just, it seems, it seems wrong to me. You know, a $15 minimum wage suggests that employers are wrong in what they pay, you know, and, and they need to be corrected by the government. But, you know, you make the point that employers will not be able to grow a workforce as they're going to be spending money on wages instead of growing the business, maybe doing workforce training or something like that, reinvesting in the business. You know, elaborate on that a little bit. So, Tim, you're right that part of what workers receive is not just wages and benefits, but it's also investments in those workers. It's training them so that they can move up in the company and grow in their careers. And, you know, the reality is, yes, $15 an hour would be great if that's the smallest amount that anybody can make. But not everybody can produce $15 per hour. You know, my first job at Pizza Hut during high school when I was cleaning dishes and making pizza, I was not producing $15 per hour. It wasn't worth that. And I would not have had that job if the minimum wage were $15 per hour. And so the reality is, is you're just cutting these people out of jobs or you're massively increasing prices. You know, a Heritage Foundation study estimated that fast food prices would increase up to 38% with a $15 per hour minimum wage. And so the reality there then is that you end up having employers shift to automation and you're gonna have computers that you're ordering from. You're gonna have robots doing work instead of having actual people. And some of this is gonna happen naturally over time, but you certainly don't want to jump um, the ship there and cause force this upon the economy. And another point is that there are certain things that we pay for today that might not be possible and will be even less affordable with a $15 per hour minimum wage. And childcare is one of those things. You know, the median childcare wage in the U.S. is about $10 per hour. If we're going to raise those wages to $15 per hour across the entire U.S., then you're going to see a huge spike in the cost of childcare. And already it's unaffordable for so many people. And so it's just this reality confronting that, yes, we want higher wages, 
but what is that going to do to the things that we buy and who's no longer going to have a job and who's no longer going to be able to afford what goods and services? So I think that, you know, policymakers need to look beyond what just sounds good and feels good. And what does this really translate to for individuals' lives? Well, if it worked for Rachel Gressler at Pizza Hut, I think it's going to work for other people as well. You know, so so Rachel, thank you so much for giving us uh, your perspective, and uh, we'll look forward to continuing to track this issue as it develops. Thanks, Tim. And thank you so much for listening to Heritage Explains. Get in touch with us. Send us an email at managingeditor at heritage.org or leave us a comment wherever you listen to the podcast. Also, hit that thumbs up button or that like button or whatever button shows positive vibes to us. We really, really appreciate it. Now, I've linked to Rachel's research as well as some other resources in the show notes. So please go check it out. Michelle's up next week and we'll see you then. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Descher, with editing by 